Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Ruck. I'm Alex Lowe and I'm here on my own this week. There's no Stephen Jones, there's no Will Kelleher, there's no Stuart Barnes. So we've got a bit of a different episode of The Ruck for you. We're still covering the Premiership, we're still covering all matters off the field and we're still covering the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. But it'll be me chatting to Jess Hayden about all events down under. England opening with a record win against Fiji. Wales sneaking a late victory against Scotland. I'll also be talking to Simon Halliday most recently chairman of European Professional Club Rugby, on his vision for how the game in England needs to be governed in order to avoid the Worcester fiasco and the saga that is unfolding at at Wasps, one of the most historic clubs in England facing administration. But first, we have something a little different this week on our coverage of the Premiership. The former England analyst Ross Hamilton posted a link on Twitter last week just outlining the number of tries being scored across the league, so we thought it was about time to have him back on the podcast. Ross joins me next to to assess some of the trends we've seen over the first five weeks of the league and how it compares with rival competitions in France and in the URC. Joining us first up on on the pod is is Ross Hamilton, uh, former England performance analyst who who now works on his own, giving us all um, the insights we need into into the game. Uh, It's been another cracking round of, of Premiership rugby close games, loads of tries. Ross, how does the Premiership uh, compare to, to to the other leagues around around Europe, the, the top 14 and the United Rugby Championship? What are you seeing from the league in terms of, of, of the close scores and the high scoring that, that we're getting in the Prem? Well, I think we've all been really um, surprised, but maybe but um, enjoying how many tries and points are being scored this season. Everything that's going off the field is one thing, but the rugby on the field is doing its talking. And I just sort of wanted to see how that stood up against other leagues and against um, what we saw in years gone by as well. But compared to other leagues, um, in the Premiership, we have scored 219 tries so far in the first five rounds, uh, 1,600 points out of 28 games. We've also played the fewest amount of games compared to the other leagues and yet scored quite considerably more tries and points. So if you compare that to the top 14, they played 35 games compared to our 28 as of round five. Um, but have scored only 161 tries. So nearly 60 or tries less than us um, playing seven more games. The URC, just 199 tries and 31 games. So again, more games, less tries than us. So 
for us being the premiership. So just the excitement that we're seeing in the rugby that's being played, the entertainment factor of the premiership, I think, a moment compared to these other comparable leagues in the Northern Hemisphere uh, is fantastic to see. Really enjoyable, enjoyable rugby. When you've worked with elite coaches, Ross, would they see this high points tally, this high tries tally as being indicative of good rugby or would actually they be frustrated at, at, at the number and that, that there's... Because you know, loads of tries doesn't always mean great rugby. It can just it can mean you know one sided. It can mean rubbish defence. You know that you'll have defensive coaches pulling their hair out at some of these games. What what do you think the coaches around the Premiership are, are making of 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 the games as they've unfolded? Yeah, it's got to be a bit of both, isn't it? It's it's good attack, maybe some poor defence, and if you're on the wrong side of that conceding tries, you you're not going to be best pleased as a coach. But I think with everything, with rugby, it's, it's quite cyclical. So we go through phases and periods of teams trying one thing, one team being very successful with it, and other teams try to copy that. Then when that becomes the, the precedent, then teams try to work out ways to get around that and to beat those teams and to score more tries elsewhere. And I just think we may be having a, a big a big shift in that from last season. I did some comparisons last season as well, just to, at this point, around five, um, how many tries were scored? 184 last year, and again this point, um, 219. So it's a 16% increase. And I mean, I don't know if 16% feels like a lot, but across every match, every game, every team, that that is a huge amount of, of increase of scoring. Um, so I mean, where are those tries coming from, and, and how are those teams getting them defensively? You might say that's poor, um, but you also might say attacking these teams are just looking at how to break teams down a little bit better than they were last year to try and get some success where they didn't do last season. Um, what are they doing? We, we've spoken on the pod in the last few weeks about Saracens and Saracens have, have shifted their their philosophy really from from the pragmatic territory-based team that, that we know to, to a team who are prepared to run from areas where previously they would always have kicked. Um, but then there are other teams, Leicester, who are still playing behind their kicking game, if you like, what are we seeing or what are you seeing in your in your analysis of, of the league about how teams are, are trying to attack? Well, Saracens are a great example because uh, maybe the, the conception this year is that teams are kicking less and playing with the ball a little bit more, but that's actually not the case. Um, I had a look at the numbers and the team's average per game per team are kicking almost exactly the same, maybe a kick slightly less. But it doesn't mean that teams are unwilling to kick the ball or wanting to keep hold of it or playing some, you know, fancy rugby risk, uh, risk reward rugby with offloads everywhere. Saracens are doing that, but they're also still sticking to their kick style and their kick, uh, kick chase, still sort of the bread and butter. And it's the same across the league. What I did find, though, was that whilst teams are kicking sort of effectively the same amount, they're playing with a lot less possession time. So nearly two and a half minutes less per team per game than we saw last season. I mean, that again is a 13% change, may not seem like a much, but if you think about all the work that teams do and the preparation that they do in their training for what is 16 minutes, 21 seconds worth of possession time with their ball in hand, and that's how they are scoring all of these tries. They don't need very long to do it. What they're doing then is getting far more output, attacking output from their possession. Very similar amount of carries as well, even from much fewer possession time, much lower possession time. More carries, more meters, a lot more post-contact meters, more breaks, more offloads. But one of the big things for me, again, kicks are staying the same. The teams are being much more selective. And Saracen's, again, an example of this. They kick still exactly the same amount, but yet we are seeing that offloading game, those line breaks. When the opportunity arises, when they've 
made the created the situation where they are in a good attacking position to go and play. They then do it and they're happy to switch on rather than just keep kicking it back, keep kicking it back. We saw that and that was sort of the evolution I was talking about. Leicester doing that last year. Every team that played against Leicester kicked the ball back to them because they were felt under pressure. Now, if there is an opportunity where there's a slightly weak kick, a good attacking position, very willing to go and play and go and attack and try and chance their arm and being successful with it. Some of the numbers I looked at saw red zone efficiency. So, in fact, again, teams are getting into the red zone slightly less this season than they were last season, but coming away with more points. So, therefore, much more efficient. And, again, that comes from selecting the right times to go and attack. If there is a weak kick and there's a broken field and a defensive line isn't set, that's an amazing opportunity to go and attack. And to give you some of the numbers, red zone efficiency per team per game last year, 2.31 points per entry 3.11 points per entry this season again a small margin but every single entry you're getting 0.7 points more every team every game every entry that adds up to quite a lot and I also looked at a success rate as well we just measured that by being how often you come away with a score of any kind rather than points as that can change um, but the red zone success last year 39 percent and this year 51 percent so teams getting into the red zone are scoring and coming away with a point more often than they're not this year, whereas last year you're close to being just a third of the time they were doing it. And is there a reason why why that has that has changed from last season to this? Is it simply a reaction to last season, or are there other factors that that coaches and analysts will be taking into account that that allow this this shift to happen? Well, coaches and analysts and everybody would constantly be looking at the game and constantly looking at ways to improve. And as I mentioned earlier, I've sort of the cyclical nature of it. If a team is constantly kicking and constantly giving you possession, giving you opportunities, you almost want to take those. You've got to play pragmatically. And if it's back in June 22 and it's, it's very risky to play from there, sure, then of course you kick back. But if there is an opportunity with a loose kick on the halfway line and you've got some guys in the backfield to attack with, then that's an amazing opportunity. So to give these teams and players' licenses to do that, to take those, to, to, to read the game, really, to read what situation is the best for them. And again, I, I looked at some numbers of that situation about where teams were taking those advantages and when they were. And again, we're showing they're not actually kicking any less or teams aren't kicking any more. They're having the same amount of opportunities, but they're utilising them much better, for, from, my, from my point of view, because of the numbers. So I looked at where tries were scored from or where the attacking possession originated from. Last season tries uh, from the opposition 22 there were 65% of all tries originated from the opposition 22 a quite a high number specifically for last year but looking at this year so far and that's only 48 so therefore 52% of the time teams are scoring tries from outside of the 22 when the ball is kicked to them turnovers it could be the set piece as well but just more willing to attack from those areas rather than just the sort of monotonous, repetitive kicking back into the right areas to try and get a line out in the 22. And then they attack from there, much more willing to do it from further back in the pitch and still getting the success. And I think that's why we're seeing so so many tries and so many great ones. We were only five rounds into the into the Premiership season, Ross. How At what point does your analysis allow you to forecast who is going to be there at the end? And we've got Saracens, uh, who put 50 points on the champions last week and put 30-odd points on Newcastle this week and Sale undefeated so far. Do you get to a point in the season where, when you're, when you're looking at the real details of how each team are playing, that you can forecast who you think is going to is going to win it? 
I mean, statistically, not so much, I'd say. I mean, you're just sort of going down to asking my opinion, which I'm obviously willing to do. I try to base that off as much evidence as I can. One thing I'll mention, and I, I sort of can imagine the, some of the questions that I might be getting off the back of this, is we're only five weeks in, yes, there's a smaller sample size than last season. And it's the start of the season when we've had some pretty good weather. That does make a difference, of course, to running rugby, being able to score tries. And as we go through the winter, that may change. So therefore, our prediction may change and teams may have to adjust and adapt accordingly. So it, it will always fluctuate throughout the season, of course. Um, but my sort of answer to that might be, as Saracens again a great example, and I'm perhaps a little bit biased that I, I was involved with them in, in the past, but they were the originators of this kick style, kick chase pressure kind of team. Leicester have taken that on, obviously heavily influenced by Saracens with Borthwick and, and Wigglesworth. Um, and they were very successful and they won the league last season, won the championship. But Saracens have still got that in their locker. They still have that ability. And yet they still felt the need to adapt and, and to adjust and to build on that, to apply something else. As we said, they're actually the most uh, offloaders so far this season per game. They've had a bye week so far. Um, and they made the most line breaks. And they still do their kickstyles. So they're just adding this extra element onto their game plan. And I think that's the point. And that's what you want to see in a team and, and as a predictor of success and how well they're going to do is if they're capable of building and progressing i mean even in this league as soon as you stay still you end up going backwards because all the teams go past you so if you're if you're leicester for example as we maybe you've seen arguably they may have gone back slightly this year from what they were last year that saracens defeat one example um but if they just stick with their kickstart and all these teams have developed this attacking game and this offloading attack from anywhere style then they may be going backwards so a saracens again perfect example but the development and the willingness to adapt and to progress is probably the, the highest predictor of success for me. Brilliant. Well, we've got um, we've got Simon Halliday coming up next. He's going to talk about, uh, I guess, a lot of the off-field issues that, that rugby faces. But just lastly, Ross, as you started the conversation, from what you see and, and from all the data that you draw, the product that the product, as, as we now call it, but the the rugby that we're getting in the Premiership um, is of is of the highest standard it it's ever been or, or, or certainly there's certainly a lot of light to the to the off-field shade isn't there a hundred percent um the the entertainment are 100 i think is one of the best we've ever seen just in terms of the numbers as we said today that the the stats speak for themselves um but the games are so enjoyable where that comes from whether that's no pressure from relegation or pressure for people's jobs and, and trying to save their careers, which is a sorry state of affairs, but it's one that we're in. Um, but absolutely right. The rugby that we're seeing on the pitch speaks for itself, stands for itself. The product, again, as you rightly say, I think is fantastic. Um, it's clear for to see. We can do it in the stats. You can do it in what we see every week with our own eyes. But it, it's certainly there and it's really enjoyable to watch. Obviously, hopefully that continues and, and the premiership continues to be as entertaining as it is. Yeah, definitely. And we had Marcus Smith was saying just the other week about the players having this growing recognition that they are entertainers. They're there to sell the sport. We need we need more eyeballs. We need more people coming in and and games like like the you know I was at uh, at Wasps against Northampton yesterday. I mean, get, more games like that. Um, you, you'll be you'll be trying to you have to lock the gates as people queue up outside. I would hope. Um, Ross, th thank you for shining your your expert eye on um, on the Premiership five rounds in. Let's can we, let's check in in a few weeks' time and see whether. As you say, whether whether the weather changes things, whether the autumn international break changes things, it'd be fascinating to to plot this through towards the final. If if you don't mind joining us again.
Absolutely. Happy to. Brilliant. Great to see you, Ross. Thanks very much. Thank you. Next on The Ruck, we're joined by Simon Halliday, the former chairman of EPCR, who's also held key roles with the RFU on their council, in the championship and at Bath. And he'll be here to share with us some of his interesting ideas on how the governance of the game needs to change. Joining us now on the podcast is is Simon Halliday, uh, most recently the, the chairman of European Club Rugby, but he's held administrative roles on all sides of, of the game from amateur, championship, professional, international and, and Europe. Simon, thanks. thank you for joining us at a time when, when uh, I guess, the, the club game in England has, has never been more turbulent. Yeah, good morning, Alex. Yeah, it's uh, pretty sad to see this going on. And I think, uh, you know, it's incumbent on all of us who've been involved in rugby over a period to, to, to try and push for, you know, long-term solutions, not short-term fixes, long-term solutions. Yeah, so we've since our last podcast, Worcester have been officially suspended from the Premiership and relegated. Wasps are entering a critical week where they need to find a rescue package, otherwise they will they will go into administration. They're already trying to lobby to, to not follow Worcester in in being relegated. Lawrence Delalio was was arguing that case um on BT Sport at the weekend, much to the, the chagrin of, of all connected with Worcester. Um the the league has got itself into in, into a massive hole. Premiership rugby executives um, to be fair to them, ever since they joined, Martin Phillips and Simon Massey Taylor have talked about the need for them to to grab more executive power so they can make quicker, uh, more centralised decisions. And this, I guess, this has shown up the the governance system to be unfit for purpose. They they want to make that change, but Simon, you you think you think it needs to go further than just giving some ex- centralised executive power to to the clubs? You, you you feel that the way out of this, as you just said, is not just a short-term fix on on governance it's, it's a long-term structural change uh yes i do and i think the first thing to say is that the people like simon massey taylor martin phillips are you know outstanding administrators and they prove that over a period of time and I, that's not really the point you know are there quality people uh involved there are uh, there's no doubt about that but i think the if you go back briefly the whole thing was set up uh from the point of view that the rugby union never thought the clubs could exist on their own and then they eventually accepted that they would, going back 10, 15 years when I was actually involved in helping the first deal get done. But that was never a long-term solution, in my view, because what you had to have was the rugby union and all the stakeholders, uh, the premiership, um, the championship, the players, all, all on the same page, trying to find a, something that worked for everybody. And obviously what's happening now isn't. You look at what's happened to the players at Worcester, for example. So whilst executive powers do need to, to be adopted by premiership rugby, um, so that there's an open books policy, if you like, to be financially sustainable, to be uh, financially adequate, to be the right person to take on a rugby club. You know, that involves the RFU as well. And I think, you know, what I think should happen is that all of those groups I talk about, um, pl- plus I suspect people from the outside, plus indeed CBC, uh, should form an all-encompassing body uh, that can actually identify all of the issues and allow clubs to go forward sustainably, as well as to give a pathway. And you know, the RFU has to be a key component of that as well, but they themselves have to professionalise. That's never happened. And I think whilst it's been talked about for the last decade, it now needs to happen. So if you're carving off the professional side of the RFU into an organisation with with the clubs, 
with CVC to form a kind of a, a one centralised governing body. It, at the moment, we have the RFU in partnership with the clubs, bridged by the professional game board, which is supposed to represent all of those all of those sides. In why would your centralised governing body be any different to the professional game board? Well, the professional game board was politicised for a start. I, whilst I'm not saying that's the case necessarily anymore, there've been there've been big efforts to turn it into the sort of body it should have been in the first place. But Francis Barron didn't allow it to happen that way. That was back in 2008. So I've got no reason to think that that they don't. But uh, I do think that the that the issues are so big and so broad that there needs to be a group that had the whole picture, and that is part of the problem. Even though you've got good people involved, they haven't got the full picture. Hence the comments from the RFU and the PRL around the whole topic of Worcester and WAS. And that's just that's just possibly the beginning. The fact the players have been in the dark. The fact the championship is not consulted at all. So you have that mess of the championship. So whilst you have all these talented people, they don't operate with full information. How can you make great decisions if you haven't got full information? It's really that simple because it relates to finance as well massively so so the allocation processes of what what money is available to the professional game has never been properly decided on a needs base uh, it's all it's just been driven by market forces or the ability to to pay and in the championship sense they've suffered a a pretty terminal reduction in the money with absolutely no understanding of why and when you talk to championship clubs they would tell you that so i think all of those scenarios are begging for a coordinated approach with proper executive power. Is there any hope of your vision becoming reality? Can you actually see the formation of an English rugby PLC body, or do you think, do you think at, at the, the beginning negotiations now for what they call the professional game agreement, the new um, the, the new deal that would come into force in twenty twenty four, which for for which the RFU effectively pay the Premiership. Uh, incentive money to, to produce homegrown players and to release England players. It, it's based on a partnership agreement deal. Can you see any, anything more solid than that ever being put in place? Or are the two sides so entrenched that it's impossible to, to break down that 27 years of, of history of professionalism? Well, I don't, I don't know what, what it is that would force the change then if this doesn't. You know, one of the great names in rugby, Wasps, um, really one of the great names, you know, along with Bath and Leicester, you might say. And, you know, you go back in time and you think, um, how can we let this happen? You know, I'm not diminishing Worcester because Worcester's also a fantastic story. Cecil Duckworth, what an incredible thing he did bringing Worcester to where they got to. But the fact is, I think the, the current structure doesn't allow for the right changes to be made. So change the structure. And I think if this is not a warning signal, I don't know what it is. And uh, whilst I say there are great people around, and there's no doubting that, you know, Bill Sweeney and um, Conor O'Shea, you know, they've been in situ uh, for a while now. You know, they do understand the issues, but they haven't got the answer either. They can't create solutions because they don't have the information. So I just think the game is absolutely on its knees from this standpoint. I'm at CVC. You know, you can say they've op- they might be operating a Darwinian principle that let let the weak ones go. And, and if we need to come in with more funds, I mean, Look, I've got three decades in financial markets. I now have private equity businesses work. But, you know, they cannot be happy with what this has thrown up either. So people are operating within their own environment still. So just to say, let's do the PGA. And people like Bruce Craig, for example, visionary, 
I mean, he's done so much work to try and make things happen, but you can't do it in isolation. I think that is where enough is enough. And this group needs to get together. There needs to be this. They need to make some changes. They need to structurally call it out. They've got to go off and have board meetings and make decisions. But I don't know. It's not as if things are okay, except for these two situations. It is quite clear this is not going to sustain itself unless you make changes. Yeah. So you're, you're in shorthand, you can't make the required changes uh, without changing the system. You can't make that change within the, the, the structures of the same system. No, and, and when it was set up, you know, again, I'll go back to the beginning because I was part of it. it. It was set up out of adversity because the clubs wouldn't talk to Francis Barron and Francis Barron and Martin Thomas wanted to buy up the clubs. That's, that's how this started. And every CEO since has perpetuated the model. I'm just saying, don't do it. You don't have to. Just go back to the beginning and say, if we didn't have any agreements, what would we ideally want? Mm. And I'm absolutely certain that the people we mentioned who are smart and really care about rugby, they would all want something different than what they've currently got. So how can you get it changed? Well, pressure, outside pressure to make it change because you cannot make this sustainable by just having little groups of, uh, of people who've been set up before, not with that much thought, but we had to. And I'm saying you don't need to keep this system, create something that works. Yeah, and you're not suggesting the RFU buy the clubs now. It's a joint venture idea where both sides are pulling in the same direction rather than having to negotiate over access and, and often duplicating yeah. work and duplicating academy investment and community investment and that kind of thing. Well, in my time as chairman of EPCR, I went to Ireland and saw how the system works there, spoke to all the heads of provinces, the heads of the unions, the commercial director, et cetera, an absolutely perfect system, driven by their circumstances in the four provinces and the fact that they're working together, they know they'll get an outcome because of that. And it was quite clear they're on the same page. And there's no coincidence, they are probably pound for pound the best rugby nation in the world right now. Um, that's clear as to why that's happened. I'm not saying you could do that in England because the club system exists. You know, it, it, we're based on club, you know, and, and I'm a club guy, but actually I'm a rugby guy because um, the club system has got to be allowed to, 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 to work in its best possible form. And it's not the way we're doing it at the moment. Simon, the other side of the game which concerns you is, um, is player welfare, is, is the safety element. We saw... Um, research coming out last week, stark research really f from the RPA, which revealed uh, around half of those um, surveyed f were concerned about their cognitive function. Um, there was a study in Scotland which found that the risk of elite rugby players developing motor neurone disease was 15 times greater than the general public. These are concerning statistics at the elite end of the game. As you said, you've been involved at all in all size of the game you've got kids yourself now and, and do you have what concerns do you have about the way that the the game is going on the field not just the governance off the field I think I mean, the last thing I said when I stood down as chairman was deliberate and I called on world rugby to action some changes as fast as possible this is a year ago now and I made the emotional point that that I've got five children two grown up I've got three young ones and um I I I was struggling to think how I would encourage them against the background of what seems to be an attitude of, you know, let's allow, let's allow dangerous play, you know, because teams have got bigger and stronger and it's just one of those things. Well, I don't think it is one of those things. And my motto has been, let's go back to the future. And, and all the changes that have been talked about 
progressive rugby talked about them uh, to, to mandate um, tackle heights, to to mandate the, the amount of contact training. I mean, I've always been horrified by the amount of contact training taking place over the last number of years. Um, to, uh, to to put in proper sanctions against players who, who disregard these things. And, you know, I've used Sean Edwards. I remember on a European trip sitting with him for a number of hours stuck at an airport. And he told me his philosophy. It was about tackle low, stay in the game. You know, don't injure yourself and don't injure other people. That was his philosophy. It was really simple. From one of the hardest guys in in as a player and as a defence coach. So it's not trendy or um, inevitable that, you know, you tackle the shoulders or above. It just isn't. And so let's take it away. It's not fun to watch. It's not fun to play in. And as we're finding out, it's very, very detrimental to people's health. So I just don't understand. And I understand this pressure from Southern Hemisphere. I understand this pressure from lawyers. It's just not relevant. Uh, you've got to set out a way forward that's going to track people back into the game. I know people within the RFU, by the way, are really keen to push for this. But they've been told to not by their lawyers. Well, that's not the side of history I want to be on. You know, you've got to make the changes, make it safer, make it more accessible, uh, make it more fun to watch, all of those things. You know, replacements, sorry, common sense. You've been on the pitch for an hour. Your opposition's been on the pitch for an hour. Then it's the best take it all in the last 20. That's what people come to watch. And yet, on comes a new replacement who knocks you into next week, and you're going to get hurt. You just are. And I don't care when it or there's, you know, Evidence isn't quite conclusive. Really? Uh, I don't think anyone's going to disagree. So it's also not much fun to be watched those last 20 minutes when subs are coming on and off. But you actually know the physical damage that can be done by a fresh player come up against the guy who played for an hour. It doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. So I think there's a whole stream of these, um, these pieces of evidence that um, we're now regretfully seeing coming through from uh, you know players who've given their their sporting life to the game, it's not acceptable, and they want to see change going forward. They don't want to take the game down, but they want to see change. And I think if we don't make that change, then the the spiral of reducing participation in the game will continue, and it's our own fault. So you you said earlier that you're you're a club man, but you're a rugby man. You've got um, I understand you've got you've got one last big sporting achievement ahead of you to help raise some funds for the, for the Bath Rugby Foundation. Just just quickly fill us in on why, why I guess I guess the importance of a club in a community and, and why it is that, that you're going to drag yourself around the course in Bath for, for one last time. Yes, I think, I think it's really important to say it. And the, when I came to Bath and I had a pretty catastrophic ankle injury that almost uh, destroyed my career, which I need to start to play once for England, it took me three years to get back into the team. And I was looked after by the whole community at Bath when I literally had nothing. I lost my job. I had no money. I had no prospects. It was a pretty grim time. And uh, a lot of people got me back up on my feet. And so um, I've always got so much to thank this club and this city for. And in the years gone by, when I eventually had my ankle fused, um, it allowed me to ironically start running again um, after a period of time when I couldn't really move around very much. So I started an inglorious running career um, of marathons and half marathons for, for heart charity, Cardiac Risk of the Young, and then Help for Heroes. I was a patron. So I've come back to Bath and, you know, there is there is a, a very distressing level of um, deprivation and poverty in and around this part of the world. Uh, young people don't get the advantages and 
the help that they they need and would like. Pandemics made it worse. So coming back to this part of the world, I thought, well, one last time, you know, I can actually drag my body around the city. Luckily, not up and down the hills because it's uh, they've mercifully made the the track reasonably um, even. Um, so this is the last time I'm going to do it ever. Age sixty-two, probably the only one of my generation that can. Um, they all talk a good game, but none of them can do much running these days. So you couldn't drag Barnsley around the course with you. I'm sorry. You couldn't drag Barnsley around the course with you. Oh, Barnsley! Well, if only if I offered him a glass of red at the same time, I suspect. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, he, Jerry. Jerry looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, "I'll be watching from somewhere with a pint of beer in my hand." So that's fine. Um, and look, you know, if sportywineclub.com, I, I now run a company called Sporting Wine Club. And uh, the link will be there. And if you'd like to support me, my last bit of uh, sort of road activity, then there it is. And, and look, if that proves something about the way we need to protect our clubs and our communities, um, you know, I've got so much to be thankful for. So let's make sure the next generation could be saying the same thing. Wonderful. Listen, Simon, thank you for joining us. It's been fascinating to hear your your thoughts and, and, and good luck. What date's the, the race? This coming Sunday. This coming Sunday. Forecast is cool. Cool and breezy. <laughs> well, listen, good luck. And, and the uh, Just Giving link can be found on sportingwineclub.com. Simon, thank you for, for joining us on, on The Ruck. And uh, we'll, we'll check in with you soon. Thank you. Up next on The Ruck, Jess Hayden joins us to talk about the Women's Rugby World Cup. We have a full Women's Rugby World Cup pod coming up for you on Thursday, but uh, we couldn't allow this episode to go by without talking to Jess Hayden about the opening weekend of the tournament in New Zealand. Uh, England, I don't know if you guys were up. I I had set my alarm. I had stinging eyes and and a steaming cup of coffee at 4.45 on Saturday morning to watch England. Uh, The Red Roses defeat Fiji. Jess, I really enjoyed the first half. Was it twenty four fourteen at half time? It, it it felt yeah. every time Fiji got the ball like they were about to do something, and you saw just a bit more of the professionalism of England in in that first half. And then the second half was fairly kind of predictable fitness and execution. England pull away fourteen tries in total for a record a record eighty four nineteen victory. But I, how did you see? I like I say that first half. I I, I loved it much more than the second really. Absolutely agree. Fiji, I think, shocked everyone in the first minute when they made a break and England just looked flustered in defence and they they lost a lot of their shape. And I think that's because they just really weren't sure what to expect from Fiji. But um, something that I included in my match report and I just think it's just such a wonderful stat to think about. In the first half of that match, England conceded half the number of tries that they conceded throughout the entire Women's Six Nations. So it was it was a phenomenal start for Fiji. But yeah, of course, inevitably, fitness kind of started creeping away and the professionals of England, they just became a lot more clinical. Their shape kind of shaped up in the second half and obviously went for 10 second half tries. And it became a bit dull at the end. And I'm sure you'll appreciate how difficult it was for me trying to do the the six point at the end of the <laughs> match report of who, the, the try scorers and every time I'd go to type someone's name and what time it was I'd look up and someone else had scored a try so it was really difficult but yeah I mean it just shows England's intentions for this tournament record-breaking win in the first round and 
I think, but I think it, it, it flustered them a bit. And if they're going to be that kind of out of shape defensively, I mean, the thing I noticed about England specifically was their middle channel just kind of completely kind of broke apart in defence and they were leaving these huge channels for Fiji to manipulate. And I think France will see that, see the weaknesses in the back lines defence and they'll absolutely jump on that on Saturday. So lots to work on, I think, this week for England, even though it was a record-breaking win. The, the other stat that stood out for me in your match report was, was that this was Fiji's seventh test ever and Sarah Hunt has played 134 on her own, which which rather sums up the gulf um, that Fiji have to try and have to try and bridge, but I just watching them, it was a joy. As as watching all Fijian teams is a joy, and you, you always thought they were capable of of some magic. But you also thought if if they had any anywhere close to the same preparation time and and dedication and, and resources that England have, they would be an extraordinary rugby team. Completely agree. They've got a lot of those sevens principles, don't they? They're constantly trying to play an offloading game. Um, but with some rugby smarts, you'd hope that, you know, I don't know about you, Alex, but I was shouting at the TV, just hold on to the ball. Because England were just falling apart at times when Fiji were, were, were running into them. But when they were just offloading the ball stoppily or, or forcing loose passes, they were losing their momentum. And then, turn, you know, the turnovers came. And I think that, yeah, some really good coaching and some kind of tactical understanding within the team I think would just would do them wonders and yeah I mean I'm already thinking about 2025 and the force that Fiji could could be then yeah and some fitness work because England's fitness and bench was it was always going to tell wasn't it in that in that second half um that wasn't the only eye-catching game of, of the weekend there was it Australia who I don't think correct me if I'm wrong I don't think they've ever beaten New Zealand and they no, were they, they, they were they gave them a, a first half scare only for the Black Ferns to, to come storming back yeah, 17-0 for Australia at half time. That was quite the shock. And you can imagine Eden Park, it was 34,000 people there, most of them supporting New Zealand, expecting a runaway victory. And it was quite the shock that at half time Australia was 17-0 ahead. But then um Portia Woodman came um was fantastic. She scored a hat trick. She's one of the the older, more experienced players in the New Zealand squad. And also some great performances from Ruby Ruby Tui as well and Stacey Flula. The three players who were very experienced in the squad, they absolutely shined. And yeah, eventually came away with a 41-17 win, but by no means was that an easy win. And I think, you know, New Zealand haven't played as much rugby as England, for example, or any of the European teams really. And I think that really that first half was finding their fee and getting back to how they should be playing in the second half we saw a lot more of what we would expect to see from from New Zealand um but yeah definitely Australia rang the warning bells early on for sure and then up steps friend of the pod Kira Bevan for, for Wales with the last gasp penalty to win a, a yeah a thrilling a cl- tight tight game against Scotland 18-15 Wales Scotland was probably the the best, it was for me, the best match of the weekend. It was so tight. In the Women's Six Nations earlier this year, Wales won by five points and it was just a last grasp try that won it. It was so close. And again, we see these teams playing again now in the World Cup and it's a it's a last score that wins it. It was 15 all at 79 minutes, 58 seconds. The conversion missed by, by Scotland. They they scored a late try to, um, to equalise, but... 
yeah, God, the that final play, the ball just, it was going forward. Wales were getting their momentum. Finally, Scotland gave away a penalty. It was an offside. And you saw Kira Bevan kind of turn to her team and say, I can make that. And she could. I mean, it wasn't, it's not like a, it wasn't a ridiculous kick to make. It was a pretty straightforward kick to make. Um, but it wasn't, I don't think, what the team were planning on doing, but upsets Kira Bevan uh, and she scores it. The whole match, the thing that stood out for me was Wales's kicking ability. It's been the worst part of their game for years. Eleanor Snow's all the fly half, really struggles kicking. It's just not her strong, it's not the strongest part of her game. And yet they've had Stephen Myler in the squad teaching them how to kick. And that just completely shone through. Snowzill had a fantastic game with her kicking it on the tee and from boot and then upsets Kira Bevan to, to score the winning penalty. So very pleased. I think that professionalism that Wales have had since January definitely showed in this match and excited to see what they can do in their in their pool now with the that kind of confidence behind them. But facing New Zealand, then Australia, it's a tough group. But because third place teams can go through if they're kind of the the biggest loser that could be enough for Wales to go through now um to the knockout stages and the way they celebrated you you kind of knew that that was what was on their mind mm, brilliant but listen tune in to to our, our special pod with Jess on on Thursday where where she'll go into even greater depth about about the opening weekend of of the Women's Rugby World Cup and also look ahead to the weekend coming and just a quick word on this, Jess. France against England, 8 a.m. Saturday morning. You mentioned it just now, what France might take from from having watched England. But why is this such a big game for England? Yeah, France-England is going to be a huge match. It's what the Six Nations always comes down to, really, is England versus France. They're the closest rivals in the world, I think, at the moment. Um, I think New Zealand have shown some promise, but really France and England are really up there as the number one and number two teams in the world for me. This is going to be a really tight match. Both teams completely lost a lot of their discipline in the first half. And the the biggest test, I think, for both these sides is who, who will keep their shape and under that pressure in this match. And it will probably decide who comes top in Pool C as well. So it's a, it's a big match, a lot riding on it. And yeah, I'll, I'll actually be hosting a watch along party in London. So people who aren't in New Zealand can watch it together. It's in Victoria. I'll talk a bit more about it on Thursday, but I've tweeted about it and I'd love to see some Ruck listeners there if they're interested and, and have the fear of missing out of not being in New Zealand. But yeah, it's going to be a great match and brilliant. one well, of the matches brilliant. I'm most excited for. Where, where are you hosting it? So it's at the Sports Bar and Grill in Victoria in London at half 7am. I'll be hosting a Q&A panel with some big names in rugby and just talking about the, the match, really. So, yeah, if it's an official World Rugby event. So if any listeners want to come along, I've tweeted the link and it's like a £2 ticket, but it all goes to charity at the end of it. So, yeah, it'd be good if you want to watch the rugby with fans and not wake up your families in the early hours of the morning when the, the rugby's on. Brilliant. Well, listen, everyone, tune in to Jess's pod on Thursday and then rock up to Victoria on Saturday. You get the chance to meet her in person. How's about that? <laughs> Jess, th- thank you very much for, for, for joining us. With, uh, and we'll, we'll have you back on, on the Monday edition of, of The Ruck next week to review France against England and all the other games at the World Cup. Great. Thank you.
Thank you to Jess and thank you to everyone who's joined us on this podcast. It saved me and you from listening to a 40-minute monologue on the state of the game, which nobody needed. Before we go, it's God or Goddess of the Week time and seeing as I'm in here on my own, uh, I get to choose uh, this week's recipient. Loads of options on the field, but I'm actually going to pick Barry Newcomb. Sadly, for the second time in, in only a few weeks, we're reflecting on the death of, of a former... Uh, rugby writer, an esteemed rugby writer, who was really generous to me when I first came through. He was chairman of the Rugby Writers Club, uh, president, I beg your pardon, of the Rugby Writers Club when I was chairman. Um, and I'm just going to read out a message that Stephen Jones posted on on Twitter in tribute because he says it better than than I could. Stephen wrote, one of the best sports journalists of his generation, a fantastic companion on decades of tours, a man without a bad bone in his body and godfather to my son, Andrew. Barry Newcomb covered tennis. He was at Arlie Frazier. He covered the terrorist attack at the Olympic Games in 1972. And he was a great friend to many in the rugby writing community and many in the rugby community. And he will be sorely missed. So he gets my nomination this week uh, as a great man of the game. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your pods. Thank you to Alfie Reynolds for producing it uh, with his expertise as always and tune in on Thursday for Jess's pod and come back and join us on Monday for the latest around the game. Listener.